This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Now, if you're like me, and I bet you are, when you first meet a new person and you're trying to find out more about them, maybe somebody who you might work with or someone you might go out with, the first thing you do is Google them. By Googling someone, you can find out all sorts of things about them, not just jobs they've had in the past, but also things they've done, maybe really humiliating things. The fact is, the much-vaunted free flow of information that exists on the Internet might make us prisoners of our pasts, sticking us with reputations that we no longer deserve, or maybe that we never deserved in the first place. Chatting with me today on the show about how the Internet might be talking bad about you is Daniel Solov. Solov is a professor at George Washington University Law School, and he is the author of the book The Future of Reputation, Gossip, Rumor, and Privacy on the Internet. It's out from Yale University Press, and it was the winner of the 2007 Donald McGannon Award for Social and Ethical Relevance in Communications Policy Research. I spoke to Solov earlier this week from his home in Washington, D.C., about the book The Internet and why the idea of reputation has become such a thorny one. Solov began to think about writing this book when he started blogging a few years ago. I began our conversation by asking him about that. Well, about 2005, I believe, I started to blog, and I really enjoyed the interactivity, and that got me thinking about some of the good things and also some of the potentially bad things about blogging, because while I primarily blog about legal issues, legal theory, and privacy, and other things, a lot of people are blogging about their personal lives and the lives of other people who they interact with, and that is some cause for concern because that implicates privacy. So what were some of the big questions that you were looking to answer here? Well, in particular, the case that I began the book with, uh, which is the case of uh, someone who has become known as the dog poop girl, is actually what inspired me to write the book. Um, Shortly after I started blogging, I heard about a case in Korea where a young woman was on a train with a small dog. The dog poops on the train, and uh, she doesn't pick it up. And so naturally, people thought this was quite rude. One of them thought, let's take matters into our own hands. They snapped a picture of her with their cell phone camera, posted it online, and then people started figuring out who she was. They found out her identifying information. All across Korea, people start piling on with criticisms about her, threats. People start contacting her and calling her and her relatives and making threats and and harassment. And basically the idea was let's shame her online. Let's form a kind of posse and go after her for this infraction. And I thought, you know, what she did was very rude and very inappropriate, but the response struck me as very alarming and very troubling that forever this person is going to be known as the dog poop girl and is going to have information about her online. And at some point or other, many, many people do a rude thing or violate a norm here and there. And I think that the question is, do we really want to have these preserved forever on the Internet? So what are the sort of competing ideas at work here? What the idea that some people don't deserve privacy and they should be shamed publicly, but then also the idea that, you know, maybe you would rather that didn't happen to you? I'm not in favor of public shaming. I tend to think that the old way of shaming, which was someone did something rude, someone would tell them off, or people would give them angry glares. But otherwise, 
a lot of this stuff would just pass away over time. And the problem with the Internet is it changes things. It takes something that used to be rather ephemeral, fleeting, forgettable, and transforms it into something that's permanent. And in particular, what's troubling is that you can go anywhere in the world and someone could still Google you and find out information about you. Whereas before, you might want to, you know, you could move away from the community, people would have forgotten, no one would know about your past or that you didn't put up, pick up after your dog on the subway. Now they can Google you and find that out in an instant, no matter where you go, whether you go across the world. And that, I think, is troubling because it's sort of permanently affixing people's prior baggage to them. And what's lost is that people no longer have a second chance, no longer have a chance to reinvent themselves or to escape things in their past. And this is troubling in particular for teenagers who are in high school and the college students who are in college. Increasingly, they're all blogging. They're all using social network websites. They're all putting up all sorts of rumor and gossip, not just about themselves, but about other people. Now, this information could be true, some of it. Some of it could be false. But all this information about people is now going to be online. The information that people had in their high school and college, the, the gossip um, that they might want to forget about, that often all the other generations have been able to move past their college gossip, their indiscretions in, in college and, and uh, high school, the mistakes that they made, the foolish things they might have done, all this now you can't escape. And I think that that's somewhat problematic. You know, we're, we're permanently fixing people to things they've done in the past and not giving people a chance to escape from those later on when they mature and decide that's not the person that I am now. That's not the person that I want to be. Your book is called The Future of Reputation. What does reputation even mean at this point in time? Well, reputation is a society's assessment of a person. It's the way other people judge you and the way they decide whether or not they want to befriend you, whether or not they want to trust you, whether or not they might want to hire you or give you a loan or just anyway, just even uh, converse with you. And this is an essential to us all. You can't really live in a society without a reputation. And what shapes people's attitudes about each other is information. And so there's a bit of a tension because obviously we want to have information about other people. We want to know information about them. We don't want someone who's a total stranger. We can't find anything out. And if they've done something horrible in their past, we really might want to know that because we might not want to be their friend. On the other hand, um, we want to give people a chance to have some ability to control their reputation. And that's because we have short attention spans, and we also have a tendency to condemn before we really understand what's going on. So, you know, you, you meet uh, a stranger, you Google them, you find out a uh, bunch of really, like, nasty things that they might have done in their past. And you might say, you know what, I don't have time to really 
figure out what's true and false and find out the whole story behind this. Did this person change? Didn't that person change? I'll just move on. I'll just meet somebody else and become friendly with them, or I'll hire somebody else. And that's the problem in that we don't have time and we don't take the time to really get to know each other. We find this discreditable information and then we might just move on. And if this is affixed to a person, that's troubling. In the past, it used to be that we'd know a lot about each other. We'd uh, live in a small town, and we might people would know everybody's business. But in that context, when everybody knew everybody's gossip, they knew the whole person. They knew everything about another person, and they were kind of stuck together. So you couldn't just no longer deal with people. People would be still part of that community, and people would know the whole story about a person. You might say, yeah, that person was rude. Yeah, that person didn't pick up after their dog, but that person was nice in this other context. So they would have more of a, a full picture about a person. But today, we, we often don't. We only know a little bit about the people that we encounter. And so if you're an employer, if you're someone deciding, you know, do you go out on a date with somebody, you Google their name and you discover, look, they were incredibly rude. And the only thing that you know about them is one or two rude acts or one or two pieces of salacious gossip. Are you likely to associate with them? I think for a lot of people, they just move on because they don't know anything else about them. What are some of the stories that you talk about in this book that illustrate your points? Uh, well, there's a number of uh, anecdotes. I think there's at least about uh, 30 or more stories in the book. One involves a uh, office romance in a senator's office that uh, went awry when the woman started blogging about their sexual life, and this eventually got out and created a big media frenzy. There, there's another one involving a college student who wanted to get a... Uh, job on Wall Street, and so he sent a very odd video resume to them, which basically was a kind of arrogant video describing all these physical feats that he could do. It was kind of totally irrelevant for the job. Someone at the place he applied to leaked the video online, and he became an utter laughingstock. And uh, all across the Internet, he became famous for being the, the, the arrogant fool who made this video. That's another instance. There's instances of false rumors about people that spread like wildfire. Back a few years ago, there was the uh, Kobe Bryant rape case. And in that case, there was a, another woman who had nothing to do with this case, but she was identified as the victim and misidentified as the victim, and people started making all sorts of horrible comments to her, even after they sorted it out and said, look, she's not the person, she still got you know, attacks and other things. Uh, another case involves a man who, after the Oklahoma City bombing, this happened many, many years ago, some guy took this guy's personal information and then made a mock ad saying that this guy was selling T-shirts making fun of the Oklahoma City bombing. Naturally, this got people furious and enraged. And so this person started getting death threats, and he had to have police protection. 
and he started getting harassing calls, uh, and he tried to get this information off, and uh, it took a very long time for him to actually get the information off and to, to clear his name from this. So these are just a few of the examples. There, there's plenty more of, of this happening. I think this is uh, happening with greater frequency given the, the fact that we have uh, millions upon millions of people blogging, and the numbers on using social network websites are staggering. This is just a harbinger of things to come. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest on the show today is Daniel Solove. Solove is the author of the book The Future of Reputation, Gossip, Rumor, and Privacy on the Internet, and we are talking about just that. In a few minutes, we'll talk about one potential hitch in all this modern-style notoriety. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Daniel Solove. So, in your estimation as an attorney, what is the problem here? Well, I think the problem is that the Internet changes the nature of gossip and shaming it and rumor and it changes it from something that was forgettable and relatively harmless i mean gossip always harm it's harmful even you know nasty rumors in 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 high school and college and wherever they they might spread can harm people but but over time the the damage you know disappears as people forget things as people move on in their lives But the problem here is now you have some chance for some real permanent damage. And I think that's where the problem comes in. How do you protect people from being harmed by other people who are talking about them online? How do you uh, make sure that people can speak as freely and robustly as possible, but at the same time not harm others? And this creates a really tricky problem of how can the law balance privacy and free speech. Uh, And and that's a a tricky thing because these two really come into tension with each other. So what do you think should be done? Well, that's a really tough question. And I spend a a little bit of of the book in the second part talking about how we should uh, go about fixing this. One of the problems is that unlike some problems where you can quickly identify a kind of a bad side and a good side, this is tricky because, you know, you've pushed too far in one direction and it's bad. Too much protection of free speech and we have damage to privacy. On the other hand, if we push too far in the other direction, we start to chill speech. So it's got to be a very delicate balance. And I don't think that the law currently does a good balance. I explain in the book a little bit how the law overprotects free speech in a lot of cases to the point where it's establishing a norm online, which is say whatever you want, no matter what the consequences, no matter if it hurts somebody or not. And I think that the message should be something different that the law sends, which is you have to be responsible in what you write about other people online. This is something you need to do responsibly. You need to be aware of the consequences. It's like driving. You you can't drive as fast as you want and as recklessly as you want. There are other people on the road, and you've got to pay attention to make sure you don't harm other people. Now, the difficulty is um, how do you get that to happen? 
one thing about the law is the law can only do so much. Um, the law is not a kind of magic cure that can solve everything. By and large, we depend on the fact that people will basically act lawfully. And if they don't, th- there's only so much the law can do. And we can't lock everyone up in prison, for example. We depend on the fact that most people will follow the, the criminal law and not commit crimes. And we couldn't handle it if people didn't do that. And so the law should serve as a way to say, hey, you know, this is how we want you to behave and should help establish those norms of behavior. So how do you change the law to make it send that message? Well, I think one of the there's a few things that are holding the law back. On the one hand, I think the law protects speech too much. The other thing I think that is holding the law back is it's got a very antiquated understanding of privacy. The law has really suffered because the way that courts understand privacy and and, and, uh, legislatures and others, there are a lot of laws out there that purportedly protect privacy that could apply to online speech and, and could address this problem, but the the difficulty is that in many cases, given these old antiquated understandings of privacy, courts say, oh, there's no privacy uh, harm here. This is not private. And I think that's difficult. Here's an example of of the problem. You know, suppose you're out walking about and you, you know, someone snaps your picture. The general view about privacy is that once you're in a public place, or if you expose information to another person, it's no longer private. It's out there. So if you want to protect your privacy, lock yourself at home, close the drapes, and make sure everything's hidden away. Don't tell anybody else anything, because they could betray you. Don't step outside or go to a public place or say anything outside, because that's fair game. Now, I think that notion of privacy is really antiquated today. And that's because we do have expectations in public that everything we do is not going to be captured. One of the things that new technology is creating is that it's creating an unprecedented ability to capture information about us in public. Everyone now has a cell phone camera, there are surveillance cameras and other cameras everywhere we go. It's very easy to capture information and images about people as they're going about their daily lives, much more than in the past where people could basically go about their lives pretty anonymously and not expect to have information about them captured and disseminated online, uh, but no longer. And I think this is just going to increase, especially as technology improves. Today, it's Everyone has their own cell phone camera. They're part of the phones. Tomorrow it might be everyone has their own video camera. Soon there might be people walking around filming everything that they see and do, broadcasting to the Internet in a live stream. I mean, that's a possibility in the future, and it's not far-fetched. I think the technology is changing what happens when we're in the public sphere. And so I think we need to have a better understanding of privacy even when we're in public. When we're in a restaurant and we're talking to another person, we're in public, but that doesn't mean that we expect people to listen to our conversation, 
to record a conversation, to broadcast a conversation. When you're in the drugstore and you're buying various items and you're buying various medications and drugs and whatever, you don't expect someone to come in and take a picture of everything in your cart and then identify you and say that you bought these items. Even though you're in public, you have an expectation that no one's going to care what you're buying, no one's going to pay attention to what you're buying, and the clerk who sees what you're buying is not going to post it online. And so I think we need to start thinking about privacy differently. It's not just about concealing things. It's about protecting a way that information flows, the way that information uh, is exposed and, and, and giving people more control over how their information and their image is used and disseminated. Daniel Solov's book is The Future of Reputation, Gossip, Rumor, and Privacy on the Internet from Yale University Press. His blog can be found at concurringopinions.com. Dan Solov, thanks so much. Thank you very much for having me. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just after the show this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. On today's show, a look at gangs in the city. That's ahead at 7.30. But first, the idea of having your personal details, embarrassing photos, or rumors about you posted on the Internet is terrifying. But for every person whose spring break video ends up on YouTube, there's someone who really wants to be heard that just can't seem to shout loudly enough. One of the traditional responsibilities of the broadcast media is to give a variety of people a chance to say what they have to say to an audience. But a lot of what appears on TV, on the radio, and more recently on the Internet just falls into what amounts to a black hole of obscurity. So in the vast space that is today's media landscape, can anyone hear you scream if you're not on one of the major networks? And is it your right to have people actually hear what you're shouting? Turns out that is a little bit more of a complicated question than one might think. When you're talking about the media, how does this whole First Amendment right to free speech work, anyway? I asked media scholar Philip Napoli to help me unpack this whole question of access to audiences. Napoli is the director of the Donald McGannon Communication Research Center at Fordham, and he's been looking at this question in his own research. I started out by asking him what media scholars are talking about when they talk about media access. Access is a concept that uh, really has received a lot of attention in, in, in media regulation and media policy over the years. It has to do with the people people's ability to communicate via the technologies that are available, to have access to the kind of information that we think is important for the democratic process to function effectively. So there's a lot of different dimensions to this notion of access. And in this case, I was interested in the idea of to what extent is there a First Amendment right of access to audiences? That is, to what extent does a speaker have a right to reach a large group of people or even to reach a particular group of people that he or she thinks is important to reach? One of the things that you talk about is that the way people tend to understand the whole idea of access is in a sort of a non-media context, like somebody has the right to stand on the street corner and distribute leaflets or Jehovah's Witnesses have the right to go to people's houses and talk right. to them, that sort of thing. But what's the difference between access to audiences in that context and access to the media? And why is that an important difference? In fact, what we see in the access to media context is a completely different set of justifications, which I'll try to explain here in a second, than we see in the non-mediated context. So, for example, you might have the right to 
go to somebody's door. And the reason you're allowed to do that is because it is your First Amendment right to reach people. But traditionally, the right of access to media has been premised on the notion that the audience has the right to receive a diverse range of views. So suddenly, that's what's interesting, is the, the right of access to the media is actually not a First Amendment right that the speaker has. It's actually about giving enough people the right of access to the media so that the audience's First Amendment right to receive information has been fulfilled. And so that's a big shift because when you move from the right of access to the speaker to the right of access to the audience, you're talking about a First Amendment right that not all First Amendment scholars think is really that legitimate. So it's on shakier ground. So give me an example of how this would play out like in the real world. Well, let's take this idea of a public forum. In the real world, we've had these things that we've called public forums, street corners, parks, places where traditionally people have gathered to express themselves and to hear ideas. We don't have a public forum in the media. That is, most media, whether it's broadcasting or even the Internet, the courts have never yet said any component of our media system is, in fact, a public forum. So all those rights that we have to hand out pamphlets uh, on the street corner to knock on people's doors, those same kind of speech rights don't exist in the media. The, the rights instead have focused on the individual owners of media outlets or on the rights to, extent, to a certain extent of the listeners, but not on the, on the right of a speaker to, to reach a large audience. Okay, in the real world, you have this right to hand out stuff or mm-hmm. talk to whoever. Mm-hmm. But in the world of media, somehow that right transfers from you to the audience's right to hear a bunch of different stuff. Why is that? I mean, it seems really counterintuitive. It really began from this notion that's really starting to seep away a bit that the airwaves were so different, that broadcasting was special, broadcasting was using a public resource, that was a big part, so that the individuals or the organizations that had the opportunity to communicate over the airwaves had to relinquish some of, of, of their rights on behalf of the rights of, the, of, of listeners, of viewers. Is the idea behind that sort of that broadcasting is so much more of a powerful medium? That- yes. The term that you often use is it's uniquely pervasive. And so that becomes an interesting question again. Is broadcasting today really uniquely pervasive? Is the Internet more pervasive? So if we start to assess media by their level of pervasiveness and alter their levels of First Amendment protection accordingly, that sort of gets pretty thorny. I did want to ask you about the Internet. How does that play into all this? What, what's the situation with the Internet? Sort of two key aspects of, uh, that the Internet has introduced into this equation. One is that it gives us the sense that pretty much anybody today has a right of access to the media. Anybody can be their own media outlet. So superficially, it would seem that any problems related to access to the media have been solved by the widespread access to the Internet. But what the Internet also introduces is the need to dig a little deeper and to determine how different are the levels of access that we see amongst different speakers? So then I could say, oh, well, I have a right to say whatever I want and I can do it right here on my blog. But that doesn't mean that anybody's going to be reading it, which I guess is pretty common sense. But right. how does that how does that play with respect to you, to your argument? It, it, it gives us this 
challenge to sort of differentiate between what a media economist named Bruce Owen has described as the difference between access and success. That is, do different media outlets have large audiences because they're just better at what they do? Or do they have much larger audiences because there are structural characteristics of the media environment that are favoring them and their ability to attract audiences, whether they have the most powerful transmitters or online, whether they're most able to afford to pay for placements in search engines. Are they more heavily linked by other sites? All these things that help to drive traffic to particular websites or help to attract audiences to particular broadcast stations. It just requires us to look at these aspects of of ownership, of structure, of distribution, of audience behavior. Does a you know a television station that's a channel 212 have the same access to audiences as a network or a station placed on channel 5? Well, research tells us that people don't really do a very good job of flipping through all the channels to know what's uh, out there. They tend to peter out around channel 25 or 30. So these are just some of the kinds of things that we have to look at to have a, a truly nuanced understanding of our of our media system and not just simply be overwhelmed by saying, oh, look at all the choice that's out there. Everything's great. We need to dig a little deeper than that. Philip Napoli is an associate professor at Fordham's Graduate School of Business, and he's the director of Fordham's Donald McGannon Communication Research Center. You can learn more about them at fordham.edu slash McGannon. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, This has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, love to hear from you. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at WFUV.org. It's also in our audio archive, which you can find as well on our website. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a fabulous weekend.